Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Edward became a British captain in the Royal Navy at just 21. Of course, it could be said that great things had always been expected of him. After all, his father James had served as Secretary of State to King William III at the time of Edward's birth in 1684. The family wealth afforded him a Westminster education, a school for well-placed Britons. At 16, he joined the Royal Navy aboard the HMS Shrewsbury. But his education put him at odds with his fellow shipmates, who had received only an elementary school education. He quickly rose through the ranks and switched ships, eventually serving on board the HMS Britannia during the capture of Barcelona in 1705. The following year, he captained his first ship. In April of 1708, he took command of the station in the West Indies. Needless to say, he was a busy young man. In 1721, he was elected as a member of Parliament, but returned to naval service five years later. Edward continued to advance, becoming an admiral in 1745. Not long afterward, he set his sights on improving the Royal Navy's operations and protocol, and then returned to Parliament. He died in 1757 at the age of 73. There's a monument in Westminster Abbey erected in his memory. His distinguished service as a naval officer spanned 46 years. But it's not his exemplary service or the battles, or even the changes in Parliament that he's most famous for. No, Edward Vernon's legacy is... Grog. That's right, the mixture of rum and water originally given to British soldiers, oddly enough to keep them from getting drunk. You see, when Vernon served in the West Indies, he saw the effects of an all-you-can-drink buffet of rum on board ships. In his observations, nothing parted a sailor from his morals or his duty faster than rum and he knew just how to stop it. He issued an order on August 21st of 1740, declaring that all men would receive their daily allotment of a half pint of rum, divided into two parts rather than all at once. A quart of water was also added to each half pint. Men lined up in the morning and again in the afternoon to receive their rations, handed out and drank in the presence of a lieutenant on duty. And if you're thinking that the drink had to taste awful, 
you'd be right. But Vernon had a solution for that, too. The men could use their salt and bread savings to buy sugar and limes to make the drink more palatable. The watered-down drink still amounted to about five cocktails a day, but at least the amount of water, the division, and the taste all seemed to prevent a good portion of drunken mayhem. Due to his habit of wearing a heavy, water-resistant jacket made of a cloth known as grogram, the men had long called Vernon Old Grogram, or Old Grog for short, a nickname, thankfully, they never used in his presence. And since he'd come up with the foul drink himself, the men named it after him, shortening it to just Grog. Yo-ho-ho, matey. In this episode, we're talking about rum. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Pirates. Pirates, sailors, and privateers, they all had one thing in common in the 1700s. Alcohol, and every country had its drink. The Dutch had gin, while the French provided wine. Those serving in the British Navy were entitled to one gallon of beer each day, until they either ran out or the beer went rancid. When the beer was gone, a pint of wine or a half pint of either brandy or rum was provided depending on where they sailed. That's a lot of liquor, and some of you might be singing A Pirate's Life for Me right about now. Or maybe you're wondering why they served so much alcohol. Well, sailors needed to drink, and the stored water not only tasted bad, but it also developed algae pretty quickly, especially in tropical climates. Higher-proof spirits stored in oak barrels fared better, often retaining or improving their flavor. Food on board ships consisted mainly of porridge and salted meats, so the alcohol at least gave the men something to look forward to at mealtime. They drank to alleviate boredom, to ease tensions, or otherwise endure their time scrubbing the poop deck. Doctors aboard ships used alcohol as medicine too, both internally and externally. It cleaned wounds and enabled men to endure surgery a little easier. Disease was a major concern aboard a ship, and scurvy, a condition that occurs without the adequate amount of vitamin C, was always rampant. Left untreated, it leads to anemia and gum disease, among other things. Death eventually follows, usually from a sudden hemorrhage near the heart or the brain. Men feared scurvy more than just about anything else at sea, and rightly so. Captains assumed that 50% of their crew would die from the disease during any major voyage. While vitamin C is found in an array of fruits and vegetables, it was the lime added to the grog that helped prevent scurvy. From then on, British ships required half an ounce of lemon or lime to be added to the men's grog per day, hence the reason English sailors were often called limeys. Made from the leftovers of processing sugar, rum had a sweet taste. It stored better in casks than most, and it had a higher potency than beer or wine. Sugar growers cleverly marketed rum, and the British made it the standard aboard their ships. And for the record, pirates and sailors rarely swilled rum from a bottle. Glass was expensive, and alcohol was shipped mostly in casks. Oh, and about that legendary drink, pirates didn't have the rationed grog that British sailors had, and they liked their rum made into a punch, adding limes, sugar, and often a dash of nutmeg, but no water. Either way, drunkenness presented a few problems. Traversing lines was a job difficult sober, much less when three sheets to the wind, as pirates like to say. Drunken sailors got into more fights, were killed or robbed more easily, 
and even mistakenly recruited onto other ships. And since drunk pirates were easier to capture, it put them closer to that dreaded penalty for their profession. Death by hanging. But the threat of death didn't seem to matter to some, though. In 1719, pirate captain Howell Davis took Captain Snellgrave and some of his men hostage after ransacking his ship. His crew found the liquor and then drank themselves into his stupor. A fire broke out when one of the men went below deck with an open flame around the highly flammable rum. The fire then jumped from barrel to barrel, making its way toward 30,000 pounds of gunpowder. The men, all drunk as could be, accepted their fate and made a final toast. But thankfully, Captain Snellgrave and some of his other men had remained sober and put out the fire, avoiding a disaster. It's no wonder that we tend to think of pirates as insatiable drunkards. Captain Henry Morgan is undoubtedly the poster child for rum, yet stories surrounding him are not driven by one specific type of liquor. No, the pirate most associated with rum was Edward Teach, otherwise known as Blackbeard. Although he could drink massive quantities, he never passed out. Legend has it that he often mixed rum with gunpowder, lighting the substance before drinking it. Which makes sense, since, as we've learned, Blackbeard had mastered the art of projecting a fierce image. So there you have it. While pirates and sailors both enjoyed rum, or just about any other alcohol, really, we tend to see pirates and rum as, well, practically inseparable. Some pirates owed their rise and downfall to rum. Raising cattle was the main way of earning a living in Pembrokeshire, Wales in 1682. We don't know much about John Roberts' early years during that time, but we do know that by 1718, he'd become third mate aboard the Princess, a British slave trading ship. He'd also taken on the first name of Bartholomew, although most just called him Bart. On a June morning in 1719, he toiled away at his daily chores aboard the Princess, anchored off the Ghana coast. Onshore, mud huts and a crumbling stone fort stood against a tropical blue sky. Canoes, filled with their human cargo, rowed toward the ship. At noon, two ships entered the harbor, black flags flying in the wind. For Roberts and the others, the color meant one thing. Pirates. The princess and the other slave ships were no match, and the captain immediately surrendered. Welsh pirate Howell Davis sent his men aboard to raid the princess. They took all the liquor, food, gold, and clothing, and then they took 34 crew members. Some went willingly. Roberts did not. The manner they'd been boarded, the way the pirates ransacked the ship, and the apparent drunken anarchy among the men, all of it disgusted Roberts. However, he changed his mind about piracy after seeing the crew's treatment. While his captain had treated him and the others not much better than slaves, Davis treated his men practically as equals and divided all treasure fairly among them. He also learned that pirate life wasn't anarchy. Life aboard the ship seemed organized and even democratic. And so Roberts grew to like Davis, an impressive man with an impressive ship. On board were 32 cannons, 27 swivel guns, and a large crew making them a solid match for any ship that crossed their path. That didn't mean safety, however. Six weeks later, Davis and several of his top crew members were gunned down during an attempt to raid a Portuguese settlement. In fact, only two men made it back alive. The pirates found themselves without leadership. To solve the problem, they made punch and drank. One of the men suggested they select the best navigator, the man with the most courage. 
Then he offered a name, Bart Roberts. The crew filled the remaining leadership roles and resolved to avenge Davis's death. Roberts organized 30 men and stormed the main fort. They plundered a few houses, torched two ships in the harbor, and then sailed away toward Brazil in search of additional wealth. They arrived at the Bay of All Saints to find 42 Portuguese ships, along with two man-of-wars, each with 70 guns. A direct attack would be suicide, but fleeing would also be difficult. Instead, Roberts sailed the Royal Rover into harbor as though they were part of the convoy. His men dressed in French colors and sailed to the smallest boat, threatening attack if anyone resisted or sent up a distress signal. The smaller ship surrendered. Roberts then greeted their captain kindly, well, as kindly as possible under the circumstances, and asked which of the ships in the harbor contained the most treasure. If the captain cooperated, Roberts promised to allow him and his crew to sail off unharmed, lie or resist, and they'd face sudden death. The Portuguese captain pointed toward the Sagrada Familia, a ship with just 40 guns and 150 men on board. It wasn't long before Roberts quickly hatched a plan. The kidnapped captain would hail the larger ship and request a meeting. When the captain of the Sagrada boarded, his men would take him hostage. However, the men aboard the Sagrada weren't easily fooled and prepared to defend themselves. For Roberts and his crew, both choices, to run away or keep going, would net them the same results. So they chose to advance. Sharpshooters aboard the Royal Rover picked off the Portuguese men on the main decks. The pirates pulled alongside the Sagrada Familia and boarded, brandishing swords and tossing primitive hand grenades. In the end, Roberts only lost two men in the battle. Of course, all that noise drew plenty of attention. The Portuguese sailors set off cannons to alert the man of wars. There wouldn't be time to unload the Sagrada Familia's treasure. So Roberts decided to steal the entire ship instead. It all came down to speed. The Sagrada Familia and the Royal Rover were faster than the Man of Wars. And the pirates? They sailed safely out of harbor. When they had traveled quite a distance, they found a place to go ashore. They had just plundered more treasure than any of them could spend in a lifetime. And that's when it all fell apart. Although he had led them into a wildly successful raid, a majority of the crew mutinied, demoting Roberts. He regained command by mid-1720, though, forming one of the most successful crews in the Atlantic, raiding more ships than anyone else. Roberts also had a flair for the dramatic. In one instance, he sailed into the harbor town south of Newfoundland in a ship they had captured and renamed the Good Fortune. It had to be a sight, too. A large sloop flying the black flag, the sound of beating drums, and men firing guns. It was late June of 1720. Over 20 ships and approximately 150 small fishing boats sat in the bay. At the sight of the good fortune, every ship in the harbor surrendered without a single shot. Over time, Roberts acquired more men and more ships. He had so many men that establishing new rules became necessary. To prevent another mutiny, he wrote that every crewman had a vote in the Affairs of the Moment, and was entitled to equal shares in strong alcohol at the time it was seized. The men could use it at their pleasure. Of course, he also required the men to keep their guns clean. There were to be no Irish crewmen, no gambling, physical violence, and absolutely no women on board. Deserters would either be marooned or put to death. Musicians on board were to be given the Sabbath off, and by 8 p.m. each night, 
lights were to be put out. Those wishing to continue drinking had to do so on the main deck. It was a final attempt to curtail the amount of drunken revelry his crew had grown fond of. Far too often, the crew was unfit for duty, and they were frequently too drunk to participate in raids. Drinking had begun to unravel his crew, although they had a series of successful raids in the West Indies in 1720. They captured so much rum that the men declared it a crime against Providence if they weren't continually drunk. In May, they returned to the western shores of Africa. Several British warships were at port, including the HMS Swallow, commanded by Captain Challoner Ogle. While anchored offshore, Roberts tried to rein in his rum-swigging crew. Although they were constantly inebriated, they managed to plunder a 410-foot English slave ship that August. The onslow carried 26 guns, 50 crewmen, and 600 slaves. Robert kept the ship, equipping it with 40 additional cannons, and renamed it the Royal Fortune. Now at the helm of the largest ship any pirate captain had ever sailed, the crew patrolled the African coast throughout January of 1722. However, they had company, Captain Ogle and the Swallow. So Roberts charted a course for Brazilian waters, hoping to cash in one more time before retiring. They anchored near Cape Lopez on February 5th of 1722, and that's when Ogle and his crew finally caught up with them. The pirate captain had three ships, 72 guns, and 253 men. Ogle had just as many men, but they were all aboard one ship with only 50 guns. But Roberts and his men mistook the Swallow for a merchant vessel carrying sugar and allowed it to get a bit too close. You would think they'd be happy. They had all the rum they could drink, but they wanted punch, and that meant that they needed sugar. Roberts sent the Royal Ranger to give chase, which divided his fleet, and that was a mistake that Ogle didn't miss. He slowed, allowing the pirate ship to follow, and once the Royal Fortune was out of earshot, he allowed the Royal Ranger to draw closer. The pirates raised their black flag and fired a warning shot, believing they had another easy victory. I can only imagine their faces when the Swallow swung around, opened the lower gun ports, and delivered a barrage of cannon fire. The damage to the Royal Ranger was devastating, killing all but 100 men. Needless to say, the surviving crew surrendered. A few days later, Ogle returned to the bay and overtook Roberts and his crew, all because they were too drunk to fight. While only three aboard the pirate ship would die, one of them would be Roberts. Before his remaining men were arrested and through a haze of rum, no less, Roberts' men managed to follow his last wish. They tossed his body overboard into the sea. Over his career, Roberts had become an empire. Before his death, he had led his crew on over 400 raids. And that's pretty darn prolific. But even with the best ships, heavy artillery, and a small army of men, he was taken down rather easily by a single ship with far less speed, firepower, and crew. And historians today can only blame the rum. Well, they blame the pirates who drank all the rum. But you get what I mean. Here's how it happened. On February 9th, Ogle found the Royal Fortune right where he'd last seen it. They had seized another ship and were in the process of raiding its liquor supply. Ogle waited until the following morning when most of the men would be drunk or suffering hangovers. And his plan worked. In fact, the men were so drunk they didn't even see the HMS Swallow approach until the ship was almost upon them. Even then, they were in such a stupor, they mistook it for another trading vessel, 
or even the Royal Ranger come back. Finally, Roberts came out onto the main deck to see what was going on. He took the bold strategy of heading straight toward the Swallow, intent on exchanging side blows before heading out for open water. The two ships exchanged cannon fire, and the Royal Fortune took on some damage. The Swallow remained barely untouched. Roberts then steered his ship toward open water, but his crewmen were simply too intoxicated. Some had passed out on the deck, while others could barely walk, let alone sail. And it was all that erratic behavior that allowed Ogle to swing his ship around and catch up. The Swallow delivered several more shots at the Royal Fortune, destroying the mast. And while Robert's crew, well, those who hadn't passed out at least, tottered around on the deck, the pirate captain lowered the flag and surrendered. Soon after, Ogle's men boarded and secured the crew with barely a skirmish. Historians remain on the fence if the name Black Bart had to do with his black hair and darker complexion, or his reputation. Either way, he didn't earn the moniker until after his death. It's an interesting nickname for a pirate who was a complete teetotaler. In fact, tea was his preferred drink, and it was his lack of drinking that had caused his crew to distrust him and mutiny the first time. Little did he know then, but his crew had already planned to abandon him after the raid at Cape Lopez, all because they didn't trust a sober captain. Rum the pirate drink of choice, had been Black Bart's downfall. In the words of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, drink and the devil had done the rest. Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. All throughout seafaring history, alcohol had served a purpose and presented a problem. Even military ships around the world still carried alcohol on board long after keeping clean drinking water had become possible. For the Royal Navy, the centuries-old tradition of issuing grog ended on July 31st of 1970. On that day, sailors around the world took one last swig before dumping the barrels over the rail. Some of those sailors even took to wearing black armbands, while others had a mock funeral as they tossed the barrels, marking the day as Black Tot Day. And I like to imagine that, as they did, some of them even sang. And we heaved them over and out of sight with a yo-heave-ho and a fare you well. Pirates and rum. It's a pairing almost as classic as chocolates and peanut butter, just with a bit more wobbling, I guess. I certainly hope you found our journey through that territory today to be as satisfying as a delicious drink. But don't hoist the anchor just yet. We have more sailing to do. In fact, after this brief sponsor break, my grim and mild teammate, Ali Steed, will come aboard to share one more rum-soaked tale. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 
Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Where there's a will, there's a way. If the demand for something is high and the rewards even higher, some will go to great lengths to get it, especially rum. On January 16th of 1919, the 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution banning the manufacturing, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors was ratified, and so began the Prohibition era. But of course, the law never stopped the bootleggers. It was hard to enforce, and ingenious methods of smuggling quickly emerged. Stills, fast cars, and speakeasies. We've all heard those stories before. But let's talk for a minute about the bootleggers of the sea, the rum runners. During the Prohibition, ships cruised the coastline between the Caribbean and Canada, parking themselves just offshore. If the Coast Guard approached, they moved into international waters and out of jurisdiction. Known as Rum Row, the ships existed along every state and coastline on the Atlantic and Pacific. Smaller, faster boats often accompanied the rum-laden vessels. Their job was much like the fast cars, outracing law enforcement to deliver the rum to port. Like legendary pirates, one rum runner stood out, Captain Jack. Jack Randall, that is, and his schooner, I'm Alone. Jack had always wanted to be a pirate, As a 12-year-old in 1899, Jack and his friends pretended to be swashbuckling sailors. They raided his parents' jam and cookie cupboards and the rum cabinet. Drunk, he set out to find a ship. Of course, a few miles down the road, sickness and clarifying sobriety hit, and he returned home to face the consequences. His father understood his son's love of the sea and took him on fishing trips off Canada's Labrador coast. As an adult... Jack worked on trade ships and then military vessels, fighting in the Boer War, World War I, and World War II. He never outgrew the love of the sea, but it was also what Jack did between the First and Second World Wars that showed us he still loved pirates, too. It was spring of 1922 when the idea came to him. Rum running. Jack was good, really good, at being captain. He commanded several ships, becoming legendary among his peers. In 1928, a group of Montreal businessmen made him an even more enticing proposition, and Jack took command of the I'm Alone, a single-deck, two-mast schooner with twin, 100-horsepower diesel engines. The ship's capacity was key. It could carry 2,800 cases of liquor, worth upwards of $100,000 in a single run. And those are 1926 prices. 
And like in the golden age of piracy, Captain Jack and the I'm Alone had a price on their heads. The US government was determined to stop rum runners, but little did anyone know that in 1929, the captain and the ship would spark an international incident. It started in the winter of 1928, as Jack sailed the West Indies, then made a stop in Belize to pick up 500 cases of William Penn Rye, 300 cases of Johnny Walker Black Label, 110 massive jugs of Bacardi rum, and 200 cases of champagne, among other assorted beverages. Months later, in March of 1929, the Walcott, a Coast Guard cutter, stumbled across the I'm Alone just off the Louisiana coast. Designed and built to catch rum runners, they eventually caught up and the commander requested a search. Jack declined to acquiesce to the captain's demands. However, he also did something unusual. He invited the captain aboard. It was a pirate move akin to Black Bart's meetings with other ship captains before they were plundered. And the Coast Guard commander? He accepted. The two men chatted cordially for some time. All the while, Jack insisted the Coast Guard had no jurisdiction as he was 14 miles offshore in international waters. The commander insisted that the I'm Alone sat just 10 miles offshore and the U.S. had jurisdiction up to 12 miles. For two days, there was a standoff. Another Coast Guard ship, the Dexter, arrived and reiterated that they must be allowed to come aboard and inspect his ship or else they'd sink it. Again, Jack declined. He'd done what he set out to do, keep them distracted. You see, they'd allowed him to run under full sail for those two days. They were now 200 miles off the U.S. coast when the I'm Alone sank, bow first. The Coast Guard picked up everyone who was on board, though one crewman died during the sinking. The Coast Guard returned to port with Jack and the rest of the crew, and they were riding high on the accolades they expected for capturing this notorious rum runner. Instead, Canada stepped in and declared that the Coast Guard had committed an act of piracy. The French and the British also condemned it, and Washington dropped the charges. Jack retired from rum running a wealthy man. He went on to serve the Royal Navy and became one of their most indispensable officers during World War II. Lieutenant Commander Jack Randall died on February 19th of 1944. He was buried with full naval honors. His childhood friends might say that he had a sailor's heart, an officer's courage, and the soul of a pirate. Pirates was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Alexander Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto with research by Alexander Steed and Sam Alberti. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.